0: It's so interesting and fascinating, and for everyone, we all need to understand and just take into our own lives that it is when we experience separation. Separation. So if we really go back to the first time we experience separation is when the umbilical cord gets cut, right? And then the second time would be if the baby, if if all babies were so. Blessed and fortunate is to be delivered and placed on their mother's bosom, and then the baby is removed, whether it's to check the apgar scores or to be cleaned up from, you know, the the remains of the of the birth tissue, whatever that's like the second major separation. And it's separation, the experience of separation itself, that is the trauma.
1: Make the world a better place. Make the world a better place. Hey, hey, I'm Steve make Norris. World, Welcome to Better Place Project, place. where each week we shine a light on make amazing world, humans from every corner of the planet who are doing extraordinary things to help make the world a better place, including sharing their knowledge with us on how we can be living healthier, happier, more purposeful lives. If you are a regular listener of the show, you know that I am a big believer in the power of somatic breathwork to change lives. In fact, we talk about that in today's episode, but so much so that I became a somatic breathwork practitioner recently, and I'm now offering sessions in person and via Zoom. So please follow me on Instagram at Better Place Praj and Steve Norris Official for the latest info. And I want to say that I am so honored and proud to be an affiliate partner of the extraordinary Somatic Breathwork team based out of Boston, Texas. If you would like to become a Somatic Breathwork practitioner and change lives in your community, please visit somaticbreathwork.com. And if you sign up for the online or in-person course, you can enter the promo code BPP, as in Better Place Project, To receive a substantial discount off your training. Again, to learn more, please visit somaticbreathwork.com. Okay, let's get to today's guest. Louise Phipps-Semph, founder and CEO of Baltimore Mediation, is an attorney and nationally recognized transformative mediator for family, divorce, commercial, and complicated business and healthcare issues. She is the author of the best-selling book, Being Rational, The Seven Ways to Quality Interaction and Lasting Change. She is also the creator of a top 15 podcast, Blink of an Eye, on trauma and trauma healing. And she is the founder of the nonprofit, I See That?, The Integrative Center for Trauma Healing, Advocacy, and Transformation, Changing the Way We Respond to Spinal Cord Injury. She has been named a top CEO in the state of Maryland, and she has been awarded on multiple occasions the Distinguished Top 100 Women in Maryland Honor. She most recently was awarded Maryland's Leadership in Law Award in 2020 and the Humanitarianism Award in 2019 for her work with the Safe Streets Violence Interrupters. Ms. Semp's life was changed when one of her five children was tragically injured in a 2015 freak diving accident in the ocean surf, rendering him a quadriplegic. She spent months living by his side in ICUs and hospitals battling for his life and quality of his care paralyzed from the neck down. Guys, Louise is, and you know I love this word, but I haven't used it in quite a while. Louise is a badass. By the way, what I just read is only a small portion of her accomplishments. I mean, it's just a small, tiny piece of her resume. As you'll hear me joke with her, she's done... Like three or four lifetimes worth of achievements. But more importantly, she's just doing awesome work that is helping humanity. I promise you, you will be inspired by Louise. I, for one, am in awe of her. Let's get to it. My conversation with the one and only Louise Phipps Semp. Welcome to the show, Louise.
0: Thank you, Steve.
1: So great to have you. This is another first for me, by the way. This is the very first guest I've ever had on the show that grew up in the town that I was born in.
0: Springfield, You grew Illinois. up in
1: Springfield, <laughs> Illinois, which by the way, in, in full disclosure, that's not that much of a coincidence because I do have to give a shout out to my sweet dear cousin, Maureen Farmer, who actually referred me to you months ago and said, Steve, you have to get Luis on your show. It should be perfect. And now all these months later, we finally coordinated both our schedules and we're making it happen. So, so excited to have you here today, Luis.
0: Well, thank you. And I am as well. I cannot wait to jump in. I know it's just a, what does Steve have on his mind and want to talk about?
1: <laughs> oh, you have no idea. You have no idea. Tons of stuff. And, and I want to start with, my goodness, your resume. I'm reading your resume a couple of weeks back, and and by the way, I, I, I read it over three days because it, it took me about three days to read the darn thing because you have so many accomplishments. Attorney, nationally, nationally recognized mediator, best-selling author, professor at Harvard, Harvard, and John Hopkins, a top 15 podcast. You've won humanitarian awards. I mean, I had to... After I got a third of the way through it, I had to like call a therapist and say, what am I doing with my life? I've done nothing. <laughs> yeah. And then she'd cheer me up and everything. And then the next day I'd read another 30 year resume. I'm like, for the love of God, I need, I need to get up earlier or something. So my first question is, have you always been a like type A overachiever your whole life or, or what? What? what has happened here?
0: I have my my whole life. I have uh, not needed that much sleep, really. And it's truly any anybody can could do those things. You just have yeah. to have a big heart, I think, and not need a whole lot of sleep.
1: <laughs> that's interesting. So okay, so now I'm dying to know how much, av- like average sleep a night. How much does Louise Fippsent need for an average night's sleep?
0: Well, that's a question. If I answered it as of today, I do feel yeah. I need to catch up on loss <laughs> yeah.
1: uh,
0: i I would average probably from my early twenties uh until my late fifties four or
1: five hours a night, Wow, okay, well, I just realized where I lost about thirty thousand hours need oh, well, a lazy crazy. butt in bed because um now in in fairness i I went through. I, I, I can function fine on, in fact, believe it or not, I'm on four hours sleep right now, but I feel great because the previous like five nights I slept, you know, very, very well, much longer than that. A lot of my 20s and 30s, uh, especially launching, you know, companies working long hours, I needed five to six, in preferably five and a half to six, and I could function. But I even realized over time that ultimately I really need more like seven. And I don't get it that often, but when I do, I really, I really notice it. So I'm, I'm envious if you can function for that long a period of time. Uh, I think
0: it's really from a function of just what I felt needed to then be done because a lot of those late hours with my five children would have been looking over homework, cleaning up the house, organizing the papers, figuring out the lunch. So there's just a lot of mothering that went into those late hours when it was quiet, frankly. Sure.
1: And like you said, it's something that you're passionate about. These are all things that you you love doing, that you're motivated to do it, to be the best mom that you possibly could. I, during that same time, by the way, was raising three kids. and uh, So I don't know what excuse I have. Um, but, I don't think uh, you need an excuse, Steve Norris. Oh my gosh. So anyway... Let's so, so hang
0: on, hang on. Let, let's say one more piece about that. Sure. It might, in some ways, be related to where we might even meander in our conversation today. And that is that I suspect that my go go um, personality was certainly shaped in part by my DNA and what I inherited from my parents and personality. But I also think that as I now understand myself even more fully in my sixties that I can really look back at loss and then what drove me to make sure I was like somebody really for my father uh, who Mm. had been killed when I was very young. Oh, really? And that's a, you know, that's a story that uh, you'll see some executives or, some people who are you know championing things and w- very well known you look back in their lives around early primary loss and um and that's a that's a way that that trauma really may have been manifested and i I am beginning to really claim that in my own life
1: that's so interesting that you you said that Luis because. I think for most of my life, I've up until my 40s, I, I lived a pretty charmed life. You know, I am just so blessed. My dad is my mom and dad are still in Springfield, Illinois. My dad turns 90 in May. We're having a big party for him. My mom is 86. And so wonderful childhood, you know, just just a, a wonderful, you know life with very little. Trauma that I know of. I'm sure there's some suppressed there that I'm uh, trying to figure out right now. But uh, but until my 40s, that's when I hit uh, you know some trauma with the breakup of my marriage, the mother of my children, and and then some of the things I've talked openly on the podcast and shared with you offline about issues with the next business partner and whatnot. And so that set me down through kind of a dark night of the soul. But coming out of that, to your point, I have never been so energized in all my life, and and I'm also what I am doing with my life is never been more in alignment with who I am. Mm-hmm. So so as a result, I just feel like today on four hours sleep, I could not be more full of energy. I could not be um, more excited about this conversation and just being present here with you right now. And, and whereas so much of my, you know, twenties and thirties, I think I was kind of just unconscious, just, you know, working long hours, starting a company, trying to build it, to sell it, that sort of stuff. And, and, but it really wasn't rewarding to me from in my heart. It really wasn't very fulfilling. It wasn't my purpose at all. So so I think you know you found a purpose that's one silver lining with the death of your father and you know very early in your life you found that kind of you know spark that drove you to really do something with your life
0: I think that's very right. very interesting After, because I would um my the my story I and listening to yours would not be that I sort of discovered myself after a long period of time. And what I had been doing was really not me. I think it was that I was so close to my dad and wanted to please him. Mm. And I knew I never doubted that he loved every aspect of me that I could do anything. I, I knew he would love me. And it was just more of a, do you see me? You know, is this, yeah. is this good? Because I was feeling really good about it. And so yeah. it's kind of this, you know, this almost like a child who has an imaginary friend, you know, who sticks with her imaginary friend for the decades of her life. Sure.
1: Um, with my father and really wanting and feeling his presence. Which by the way, I could do a whole episode on imaginary friends as well. So I had imaginary friends as a kid growing up, but I don't want to digress on that path because yeah, we'll, we'll, we won't even get to my second question. So, so you've got five kids. Your life is good, successful career, successful marriage. Your kids are all doing well. And then one day, in the blink of an eye, yeah. which is the title of your, your podcast, your life changed. Can you tell our listeners what happened that day?
0: Mm. August fifth, two thousand fifteen. Uh, we were we would spend our summers in Cape May, New Jersey, and our son Archer, who was our fourth child, seventeen by one week, an age, was working at a little tiny club on the water making bacon and french fries and hamburgers and it was a 100 degrees and he asked if he could leave go take a break and go take a dip in the ocean Mm. he ran down uh, the beach down a boardwalk uh, then passed there were it was so hot there were not even that many people on the beach and he passed the lifeguard and saw another friend and kept on running he's a At the time, it was a six-foot-three athlete and dove into a beautiful wave uh, that he has grown up at the beach all of his summers of his life, including when he was in my womb. The water is our refreshing friend. And under that wave, unbeknownst to anyone, was a sandbar. And he was... Instantly rendered quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck on down, when he heard, as I learned from him, a number of hours later that evening, that it was just this huge boom, and his neck shattered, (sighs) C two to C five, and then he um, struggled to hold his breath and count how long he could, and couldn't hold it any longer. No one was coming to no one saw him no one was coming to rescue him uh-huh. and so then he took in enough so much water and his lungs filled up completely and then he he really he drowned and um, he, he he did have a i believe what we would call a near death experience now but when they did rescue him his praying and begging god to send someone and then then he just went out um, his friend James did swim and with flippers to to turn him over and to bring him in. And then they did resuscitate him and it took the beach patrol who were, you know, they had been called and it was, it was just a chaotic scene. But that's what happened in the blink of an eye where Archer was rendered paralyzed from the neck on down.
1: Wow. And... What, what was his his attitude when he kind of, you know, woke up in the hospital and discovered the news? You know, I'm, I'm sure he knew at the time, but maybe didn't know if, is this permanent? Is this? Uh, I would imagine. I can't imagine that at any age, let alone barely seventeen year old, discovering that you'll never walk again.
0: Gosh, you have a lot of questions packed into that one. Um and I will just begin by saying that that is what he was told that he will never walk again um or have the use of his arms and hands again. And but oh, that just chokes me up. No, I'm sorry. Well, I because of your question, I don't know what he thought then because at that point he was intubated and had lost did not have a voice Mm. and didn't uh have a voice for about six months thereafter part of which is from all the lines and tubes trying to keep someone alive but the other was really unexplainable how his vocal cords actually severed um but how did Archer feel, or what did he think at the time? He did tell me at the hospital, at the ICU, but after I had just begged and was on my knees begging to see my son, which they wouldn't allow. And then finally, hours later, before the surgeon, the surgeon had just arrived, whom they brought in from a, another state, And he told me when they allowed me to see him, I knew, I know I'm paralyzed, Ma. But I talked to God. Wow. Told me that. And I said, what did God say, Arch? Because I had sworn to all the medical staff that I wouldn't touch him, I wouldn't disturb him. Couldn't move him as he was just waiting. He's under a sheet. He has a neck brace on and nothing else. But I put my cheek right up next to his. and said, mm. it's, it's going to, we're going to be all right. What did God say? And he said, I have a choice, mom. And God said, do I want to live or do I want to go? And I said, what do you want me to do, God? My preference is to live. He said he blacked out again, doesn't remember anything. Maybe that was part of the blacking out. And then James came to get him. And then he was out. And they brought him back, too. And when he came back, he said, roll me over and get the water out of my lungs. Wow. So to me, whatever that doctor said, Archer, some, somehow, somewhere, someplace, sometime, some way, made a decision to live knowing he was paralyzed.
1: That's such a f- noble, um, amazing, courageous decision to make uh, for sure for a, a, a 17-year-old. And And now here you are, well-educated woman, you're an attorney like we talked about, and you've done all these things. But you're thrown into this medical world, which at the time, you know, spinal cord injuries, I'm assuming you knew very little about. Is that correct at that time?
0: I knew. I did not even know how to spell the word quadriplegic. I knew nothing.
1: Wow. And so through this process of you going, you know, through all this over the coming days, weeks, months, at what point did you decide, I want to help other families that are going through this? And you started a foundation that is now called Blink of an Eye. Well, it's currently I See That, and and you're at org. but I understand you're changing that, correct?
0: We are. It's the Integrative Center for Trauma Healing, Advocacy, and Transformation. And because of the podcast, people just think of the nonprofit as Blink of an Eye. So sure. Our board of trustees decided we should just rebrand. We are still the Integrative Center for Trauma Healing, Advocacy, and Transformation, but branded as Blink of an Eye. Yes, you can find us at blinkofaneye.org as well. But, you know, when did I decide, well, it really wasn't so much the background of being a lawyer that helped me navigate. It was the, at that point, 25 years of being a mediator with a set of collaborative um, and relational advocacy skills that really allowed me and our family to navigate a completely foreign world where we don't speak the language. uh, We don't, we're not in the hierarchy. Mm -hmm. We are not even really in the decision-making circles With all these things happening around you. And what I, What I learned over those days and weeks that you mentioned was how little the
1: medical team actually knew about spinal cord injury. Mm. And And this is recently, this was only 2015.
0: Yeah, 2015. Yes. And just anecdotally of the, you know, I could say, Steve, how many hospitals do you think there are in the United States of America? You know, take a guess.
1: That specialized in spinal cord injuries? How
0: many hospitals, period?
1: I would have to guess it's in the thousands. Great. It's, it's good,
0: good deductive analysis, right? 50 states, you know, a capital city, there's a couple major cities. We have 6,090 hospitals in the United States of America. And of those hospitals, there are then trauma centers, there are level one ICUs, there are 69 of them. And of these centers, 20, have spinal cord injury expertise. Wow. So 20 facilities in the United States of America of 6,090 have spinal cord wow. injury expertise. And so when did I decide that I really wanted to help families? I think it had a number of different hallmark points that I was absorbing and that were really indelibly shaping my experience. So I was not thinking at the time, Oh my goodness, I have to go help other families. We were just struggling to have archers live and stay alive and then how to keep our family intact. So I think it was, um, but there were these little junctures along the way. And that was one, when I began to realize they don't know that much more than I know. And then reaching out because of the many people, That, you know, God has just blessed me so much with the work I've done. I had a lot of people whom I could call on their personal cell phones, whom I worked with, and people at Johns Hopkins and people at Maryland Shock Trauma, even though I myself knew nothing about Mm -hmm. medicine, but I knew that they then could help me navigate different things in different places. And that's really what then became replicated for the families whom we serve through the Blink of an Eye Nonprofit.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you've I've learned so much when I was researching for this conversation and learning about you and learning about a a conference that you you put on and you had a couple of lecturers they're talking about trauma yeah. and and I feel in the last few years I've learned so much about trauma. You and I talked offline about having Daniel Mate on the show recently about. The book the Myth of Normal with his father Gabor Mate, and but in this in this summit, if you will, that you had you had Dr. Bobek Katib. Am I yeah. pronouncing that right? Bobek Katab. Katab. Thank you. Of course, I butchered it. Sorry. My apologies to him. Uh, but he did a lecture on brain mapping where essentially i guess we can see what trauma looks like in the brain from this and and he talked about the implications of the knowledge of this mapping the implications of that on the body and on our health can you share a little bit about what brain mapping is and and what we can learn from it
0: absolutely so babak ketab dr ketab um is head of the society of brain mapping in california and they're global and what brain mapping? It's one of the more current technological tools for physicians and medical teams to use, in particularly crisis situations, that can show how it is that the trauma has showed up in the brain, that allows them to then do the me- the appropriate medical diagnoses. It can also be used for other major disease. Um, and injuries that have occurred. And it's something that most hospitals in the United States are not even aware of that this is this technology that it's not necessarily at their fingertips because it's expensive technology, but it's there. like it's been designed, and it will then well. allow medical teams to circumvent or to leapfrog over a number of other different devices or processes or whatever they would have done to get to exactly what it is that a person needs because of what it is that is being mapped in the brain. And and with our symposium on trauma and trauma healing, we juxtapose Babak's work with the work of Dr. Dan Siegel.
1: I have him here too. Trust me, I want to talk about him also, but go ahead.
0: Yes, well, Dan, um, who has been a friend and a collaborator for a couple decades um, now, with with me and another member of our board of trustees, graciously agreed to um, to speak and to and to work with those who are participating. But it is, in many ways, such a complementary piece to what the Society on Brain Mapping is doing. That's all around technology, mm-hmm. and Dan brings us back. In, in similar ways to the work of Gabor, uh, you know Gabor Mate, and you yeah. mentioned Daniel, his son. Daniel, by the way, is the reader. Another one of Gabor's books called "When the Body Says No."
1: You're exactly right. Yeah, yeah yes, yeah, he is. It's,
0: that's another really great, great book.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And and they their work and Dan Siegel's work is very complimentary. And also another really great person whom I'd love to give a shout out to is Thomas Ubel
1: Oh, he's incredible. Um, in the
0: work in the field of trauma. And Thomas is more on generational and intergenerational and collective trauma. But I've studied with all of these people. For, That's you know, awesome. You know, one must. You want to be with the greats.
1: Yeah, sure.
0: Continue to sharpen your saw and learn. But I'd say that Dan Siegel's work is very complimentary because, you know, we begin to look at our at our bodies and the awareness that we can bring. And in something that, you know, he calls the wheel of awareness for without having all of the technology at our disposal or our fingertips, what we do have is the inner workings of the brain and the mind and how we can then, as with all of these great teachers on trauma, begin to calm our bodies. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, we can be told a number of things by physicians, some of which are hopeful, uh, some of which are very um, devastating and not hopeful at all, as if that has a period at the end, you will never walk again, you only have one month to live. Uh, This is a disease that we don't have a cure for, you know, all these sort of period at the end. Sure. Rather than, this is a data point that we can show you in science but we also know that people beat the odds that there is new technology you know coming daily uh, around the world and we can show you where, where that's happening and there's also something called personal resilience and faith yeah that can equally play as strong a role as the most molecularly perfectly formulated medicine that you might be ingesting.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm literally like totally getting goosebumps uh, you know as we talk about this subject because there's data now behind this too, Luis, that that your attitude on what you think is possible, you're capable of healing, or I mean, Joe Dispenza is a walking Bible for this exact topic of what he went through, you know, and and in his mental shift in attitude, but, but thank you for bringing up Dr. Dan Siegel, because I have, if I could, an excerpt here that I would like to read That this is a part of a portion of the description of the lecture that he was going to give, and I read this, and after reading Dr. Babak's one before this, I'm thinking, man, I would have liked to have uh, you know watched this symposium, but I love this. If I could read this, it says recent findings in the field of neuroscience can be combined with our understanding of consciousness, cognition, and culture to see how the lack of belonging in various forms of development trauma, from abuse to neglect, involve the isolation of the individual from a sense of connection with others. The lack of trust in such a relational field of disconnection can be exacerbated what, by what researchers call a violation of episystemic trust, The ways we turn to our attachment figures to rely on the nature of what is real and true. The research on the impacts of such developmental assaults on secure attachment reveal impediments in the growth of the brain's interconnectedness interconnectedness, as seen in effects on the hippocampus, the corpus callosum, the uh, prefrontal cortex, and the connectome, which again refers to the brain mapping that we just talked about. Um, Each of these integrative, and this is what's fascinating. Here's the bow on it. Each of these integrative neural systems, while impaired in trauma, can also be healed and stimulated to grow with interventions such as mind training that involves the focus of attention, the opening of awareness, and the cultivation of compassion and kindness. Boom.
0: Yeah. It just takes your breath away, doesn't
1: it? Sure does.
0: And Dan has extensive research on this. And when he refers, you know, to the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus, these are these parts of our brain that store memory. And it's with, it's so Interesting and fascinating. And for everyone, we all need to understand and just take into our own lives that it is when we experience separation. Separation. So if we really go back to the first time we experience separation is when the umbilical cord gets cut, right? And then the second time would be if the baby, if if all babies were so blessed and fortunate is to be delivered and placed on their mother's bosom. And then the baby is removed, whether it's to check the APGAR scores or to be cleaned up from, you know, the, the remains of the, of the birth tissue, whatever, that's like the second major separation and it's separation, the experience of separation itself, that is the trauma. And so when he sure. speaks about belonging and how it is that we can restore a sense of belonging, even when there has been incredible damage through all the different negative aspects of life, as you just rattled off in that amazing little synopsis of Dan's work, we do have incredible capacity to regrow their neurons and the neuroplasticity In our brains that then send messages through our bodies that allow us to digest even slowly and incrementally over time, these lifelong experiences that have otherwise potentially crippled us or demented us in in ways. And the part that is so extraordinary is that the brain is still growing new synapses well into the 80s. Yeah. And, and that's what's so hopeful. And that all of us, we don't, I mean, it's wonderful to work collectively. That's probably when some of the greatest work and trauma and trauma healing can happen is when we're working with two or more people. But we can also do a lot of this work on our own, at our own disposal, just with a shift of attention. Of how Absolutely,
1: it and a, to your point exactly, an awareness of every thought that we're having, for example, and we do, you know, you mentioned neuroplasticity. We have the ability to literally rewire our brains with our thoughts, and I think in our culture, and I, and I love that you just pointed out about the that we can create new synapses well into our eighties because. We become what we believe, and and it, it drives me nuts when I hear a 40-year-old say, you know, I'm having a senior moment, and uh, oh, yeah, my memory's going. If you keep saying your memory's going, guess what? Your memory's exactly going to go. Right. It's
0: exactly right. So so here's the real discernment um, in in our work, that the power of positive thinking, and we've got wonderful books by the title and subtitles and sure. so forth, and and what perhaps everyone's grandmother or grandfather has told them when they were a young child, you know, think positively. Or if you were lucky, I guess, I certainly would have told that. Yeah, it's so was I. powerful, right? I mean, look at you. Yes. Look at I. We had that amazing shaping of our own neuroplasticity when we were children by somebody reinforcing to us, think positively. The discernment, though, is in bypassing the trauma of our lives that we just really can't live a full life without experiencing more than likely some trauma you speak about in the sure. you know, golden years of your youth and growing up I can share many of them and yeah yet I say "Yo, oh, yes but my father was killed in an airplane crash commercially you know when I was three and a half oh yeah I guess there was some trauma there. <laughs> Someone had asked me when I got to college, like about my life. I've had such a good life, you know, but if we come back to this piece of discernment in trauma, what happens to all human beings is we're thrown into two states. One can be a numbing state and that's where our migraines and our knees that ache and that, Tick in our shoulder that crick in our lower back that we just can't get rid of, it's often trauma that is frozen in our cells, whereas if we were just positively thinking all the time, bypassing trauma and not going back with methods to thaw, which is a beautiful verb that Thomas Ubel uses to thaw some of that trauma, even incrementally, we we might stay in all just positive thinking and actually be able to put up with our bodies hurting, but not have ever really paid attention closely to our bodies in a way that we could truly metabolize old trauma
1: and be restored. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It If we continue to store that and block it and suppress it and repress it and depress it, then it will manifest itself. And, you know, it's going to come out one way or the other in, like you mentioned, a, my shoulder's hurting. I don't know why my neck is always, you know, and some people hold it in their throat or some people, you know, I I recently in the last couple of years discovered breath work and recently became a certified somatic breathwork practitioner, which soma is the Greek word for body. And that's exactly what we do with breathwork is being, as Peter Levine says, you know, true healing happens in the presence of an empathetic witness and being an empathetic witness for someone to release that trauma through deep breathing exercises, you can get yourself into that parasympathetic fight, flight, or free state, which we get into in traffic. When we have a boss that's abusing us, when we have a unhealthy, toxic relationship at, at work or at home or what have you, that is all trauma that we can store in us. And so I have found for me, breathwork to be a very, very powerful modality to help release that. And I was curious have you what is your experience and what are your thoughts on both meditation and have you done much in the area of breath work
0: oh thank you for asking oh I'm so happy for you that you have discovered uh, the soma and the somatic practice work I was very blessed to have been introduced to that myself many years ago. Nice. And I began to incorporate it into my mediation work. And I have I teach and train people to become professional mediators, or just, you know, if they're executives or running businesses or running families, to give them the relational skill set that a transformative mediator uses. And I began to bring in breath work.
1: Are you kidding me right now? You brought in breath work to train mediators. Oh my gosh. Your stock just, it was already high, but what have you not done, Louise? Oh my God. Were you, I, oh my gosh. So they're, they're
0: able to pull from the, you know, amazing wisdom of of the centuries that then there's a person Shh. like Peter Levine. I mean, my gosh. And one of my favorite books of Peter Levine's is, you know, waking the tiger and also, you know, staring gosh, the tiger know. in the face, you know, understanding what it is that we are wrestling with ourselves, but through breath work, how we can always come back to ourselves.
1: Amen. It's exactly what it's all about coming back we we are meant to be in a state of ease of we calm yeah. of perfect health of all of that
0: made the- in divine image that's where like faith and yeah. even if someone said oh you know divine or god or you know source uh, doesn't really mean that much in nature it's okay like it's all yeah. been created by the divine source yeah. and that breath is given to us to live fully into who each of us is unique from the next person next to us, not not better, not less special and unique. And that, that to me is really at the heart of all the relational work, all the mediation training, all the work with blink of an eye, all the training for our navigators working now with other spinal cord injured families in crisis we we come back to the breath because when we do, as you well know, we are able to begin to re-regulate our central nervous systems. And that is where the real wisdom, which I've always thought of as our second brain in our hearts, it really begins to bubble up from you know, that horror, right? That place below our belly button and our pubic bone right between the two. We, we experience a wisdom that's been carried all along in our bodies, but we are too busy and or too thinking or too talking to experience it. And there it is.
1: So true.
0: And then it informs our hearts. And it's our, you know, I, I do really do think that our, we have a heart brain because I've thought about this. If we <laughs> die, right. If we're, if we're brain damaged or, sure. then, you know, whether the plug has been pulled or whether we die, we, when we don't have our brains functioning anymore, we're, we're considered and called dead. And then people say, but no, but no, 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 you're not actually, you can be in a vegetative mode, Right? You could be in a coma. You could be in a, other states. But when our hearts stop, we are truly no longer living. So I think our heart brain is giving signals and messages to our bodies and then our brains, our mind brains, our cognitive brains that are even more powerful than our thought.
1: I would argue an infinite, a thousand times more powerful than our thoughts. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Wow. I had no idea. See, I learned that about you. I had no idea that you for years have been teaching breath work. Wow. in in your mediations, that's incredible. Or two, so you train the other mediators.
0: For 30 years, we've been doing national, uh, you know, certificated, um, certified trainings, mediators, um, in a relational approach and you know, really. Yeah. Back.
1: See, yeah. See that much. I knew, I just didn't know that you were incorporating the breathwork modality into that, which is, you know, as, as I've told you before, you know, privately that, that I had been involved in a couple of mediations and, and certainly n- neither one of those ex judges talked to me about breath work. That's for sure. No,
0: but, you won't, you won't find it in those,
1: uh, in those circles for sure. Yeah. I, I took a lot of arrows early. I bet you did. Yeah. Cause even now I have friends, you know, just in the last couple of years, Hey Steve, that's a little woo woo. Don't you think this breathwork stuff? So I can't imagine what you got, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Wow. You know, just, um,
0: kind of as an aside, but in having the incredible gift of being able to start a new nonprofit and to very carefully select the right melange of trustees, who will, you know, run this enterprise and breathe life into the mission that and cr- even create the mission together, I have really been steadfast on opening our board meetings with Breathwork. Really? Yeah. Because, you know, everybody's busy, And you know, these amazing people and executives, and they we're all coming together in different parts, different states. And just to have that moment to collect ourselves and to experience the, the room that we're in and then the field that we're creating together as a board of trustees to have the kind of discussions and to make the kind of decisions that we need to make to move this nonprofit forward.
1: Well, and the breath connects us, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And, and it's so much more beautiful Working with people, being with other people when you feel connected, yes, for sure.
0: You know, we um we even incorporated it into the symposium that you mentioned earlier, our symposium on trauma and trauma yeah. healing, we which we call the science of trauma. And if anybody does actually still want to get that, you can find it on the ISeeThat.org or the BlinkOfAnEye.org website, and you can get credit for it. It's $99 for the three-hour symposium. And there is breathwork from one of our other trustees, Jessica Dibb, who is the director of the Global Breathwork Alliance, who sits, we're so fortunate to have her, uh, but she did a piece for us at the symposium on the science of trauma. Again, where people were like, "Really, you've got these amazing, you know, scientists, um, and and you're going to do that?" And we're like, "That's what we're about. We are about helping to regulate the central nervous system."
1: That is so stinking cool. That's really cool. Now, you had mentioned one other thing that I want to make sure we touch upon as well. In fact, there's so many of these topics I could do a whole episode on every single one of them. So. So we're going to definitely have to have you back again for sure. But um, you talked about intergenerational trauma, generational trauma. That's a relatively new concept for me over the last few years. Can you you unpack that for us a little bit about what that means to you?
0: Hmm. Well, most of my learnings have really come from being in study groups and being part of uh, Thomas Ubel's work, and so I'm learning directly from Thomas, and then being in, he created um, an international uh, study group actually for lawyers looking at at this work and our work because lawyers who are teaching, and um, so I've been in in this group for quite some time, and so therefore, what does it mean to me in my own life? Um, wondering, for instance, why I just cringe around anytime glass is shattered. I mean, yeah, like I just, it's just, um, I've done a lot of work with that, but to realize now that it's not from my own personal experience that I carry that it's really, it's in my lineage where that's a trauma that I am holding and likely I'm probably in the third generation where it really becomes there's a there's an opportunity for trauma healing, in particular in the third generation, where there's a budding sense of potential awareness. And so you could think of lots of things in your life. Um, that family traits, you know, how you can't explain it, or you do explain it that, oh my gosh, that's from your uncle Henry or that, yeah, yeah, sure. whatever. I don't know how you got that. You, she was dead before yeah. you were born, you know. Um, but we can really look back at things uh, when it comes to generational and intergenerational trauma around separation, um, adoption, around uh, abandonment, and then we can take it into the collective sphere of war and famine um, and not having enough as it relates to generations of culture sure. and what we share. And, of course, you know, for us in the United States living or or those in Europe living with genocide or we living with genocide or living with slavery in our DNA And it might not actually be in our own DNA as it relates to what's in my blood, but in the the collective societal piece that has therefore shaped. And coming back to what you said earlier, and we're, we're reminding us all of how our thoughts, as we now know through science, can change the shape of the brain. Trauma has changed the shape of the brain which we might also, and I am a fervent believer in this and the work that I've done in inner city Baltimore and with the Safe Streets uh, folks and with also the Safe Haven Network that I helped to found many, many years ago that we have so much more violence in particular in North America and in the United States of America. I would say because of the early, early separation that we have more in this country with children not being really cared for as babies by their own parents. And then we go back what we've done to ourselves with breaking families apart through slavery, whether we were the ones breaking the families apart or we were the families being broken apart, that that collective severing of the family fiber is really what I would say is manifesting with so much of the violence that we see erupting and in the schools, where it's so unresolved collective trauma. And that's how it also touches my life.
1: Yeah, we had where it really hit home for me about two years ago. In fact, it was... Two years ago, this just a few weeks ago, on Martin Luther King Day, I interviewed two of the descendants of the last slave ship that came to America, into Alabama, and on that same podcast was a descendant of the captain who who sailed the ship back and then sold the slaves illegally. It was illegal here in the United States at that time. This was about 162 years ago. And... There were 110, I want to say, enslaved people on that ship that were ripped from their families. I mean, literally ripped from their families from Africa, brought over here, and were slaves for the next four or five years. And then they're in this little community, which is now called Africatown all their descendants, you know, 100 years ago. And in this area where these slaves were freed, these enslaved people were then freed, that's where factories were built that were polluting the waters. That's where the descendants of the captain, essentially, and or actually the person that commissioned the captain, I should say, the Timothy Mayer family there, they have generational wealth as a result of the money he made from these slaves that's been passed on for all these generations. And so the dichotomy between the slave owners and the, you know, the descendants of the slave owners and the descendants of the enslaved human beings is extraordinary. And it's just, it's heartbreaking and it's tragic. And just, just, it's, it's, it's a very, very real thing. And, and, and that's, literally growing up with the poverty in it but I believe that it is even there just in your it's passed on and I have to ask you before I forget you mentioned the breaking glass and you know that that's a that's essentially a a, a generational thing so did you come to this knowing via like an akashic record reading or or I'm <laughs> I, I I'm curious because this fascinates me as well.
0: Oh my goodness, how do I come by my knowings? Um I'm I'm a very open-minded uh thinker. It, and I'm also a traditional thinker. I have like a lot of traditional yeah. values. Um but I am so fascinated by the human being and the human spirit, and I just deeply deeply believe that god created nothing that was dark you know we it's all free choice sure everything is and so there's so much abundance around us even when we do experience whatever it is in our human experience we experience so i came upon things like somatic Experience through my Enneagram teachers. I teach personality. I've been teaching the Enneagram for 25 years, and it,
1: which you know, is going to have to be yet another episode. Just I Enneagram, I so.
0: right. Yeah. I came upon you know mystical uh, thinking and stories really through being Catholic and being involved in the Order of Malta, which is really tied to you know, the apparitions of Mary and the healings around the, you know, the waters, underground waters. And so that leads you into like mysticism and all different kinds of tribes and cultures and where they went and what they did when they suffered. And then, which has then opened my mind to understanding much more about the atrocities that happen and true darkness. You know we cannot uh, look away from darkness. We must look at straight on and bring much more light to that. Which is even in your story that you just shared about the captain. We do have a choice to be relational and up close and proximate, as has been st- said, you know, by Stephen with people, even when they have so offended us, to not have to like them or to live with them, but to make peace with our central nervous systems again, because we are the ones who suffer perhaps more than those who did the suffering, who caused the suffering. But I believe every person who's caused suffering to others is as a result of suffering that was caused to them. And so when we can lean in to the awareness of our own bodies and to the expansive notion of forgiveness in a relational way, like I feel that, Captain. I feel Steve Norris telling me that story. I I feel Louise and how that resonates for me. And I want to send some forgiveness in this moment today to the captain and the others involved in that. There's there's this quantum physic leap that we do also know through science yeah. is possible. So I think it's really through faith and through other groups I've worked with. And when I learn something, I really like to learn it deep. I can tell. Yeah, well, then you meet people who are deep, Uh and they usually have other things they're interested in. So I'm just a beneficiary of others.
1: As am I, as am I, you know, and, you know, you, you mentioned, the, the captain, for example, 60 Minutes had the same... Two of the three gentlemen that were on my show were on 60 Minutes, and Anderson Cooper did a whole segment interviewing them. And and Mike Foster, who has become a a, a good friend of mine, just an amazing human being, and, and Darren Patterson as well, one of the descendants of one of the enslaved uh, Africans that came over on the ship. When they met... They, you know, Anderson Cooper asked Mike Foster, the descendant of Captain William Foster, was the, the captain that brought the, the, the ship over. He asked him, do you feel guilty about what your, you know, ancestor did? And he, see, he said, no, I don't feel guilty because I didn't do anything wrong, but I can apologize for what happened. And, you know, they they cried together. And we cried on my podcast, you know, over this. I'm getting emotional right now. I am too. (laughs) You know. It's um, so powerful. It's so powerful. And, you know, two weeks ago, I had the absolute honor of having Scarlett Lewis Mm. on the show, whose son was murdered in Sandy Hook.
0: Yeah.
1: And... You know, and and she said the exact same thing you said a moment ago, Luis. And that is, when someone would ask her, "How can you still believe in a God?" You know, what kind of God would allow this to happen? And she said, "That's not God. God is nothing but love. This is us. We did this. Not Adam Lanza, who's the disturbed, you know, high school kid, seventeen-year-old, whatever, that murdered her son." You know, if it was just him, then why did it happen 100 times before him and 500 times since then, 10 years ago? That is us. We need to heal ourselves. We need to choose love. And that's the name of her nonprofit or foundation, by the way, is the Choose Love Movement. And it's just this beautiful, again, you see this woman that has nothing but love in her heart that's how we move forward as humanity that's how we stop these shootings that's how we It's every we're all born into this world every mass murderer every person in prison i've also had Fritzi horseman on the show from compassion prison project wow what a beautiful human being that You know, that we're all born just wanting to be loved and just wanting love. That's it. it. And in my my journey of forgiveness, being able to look at the person that did me wrong and envision them as that innocent little three-month-old child wrapped in a blanket.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Vulnerable and also so strong all at the same time, but needing to be cared for needing to be cared for.
1: That's exactly right. And you and I were fortunate that we had parents that cared for us and we felt that unconditional love, but there are so many that that aren't. And we need to have compassion for those and understanding and, uh, and, and love in our hearts for everyone in spite of what they have done because we are all capable of horrific things if we do not have These, this foundational love, this unconditional love as a child. So
0: I think it's right to always know that, you know, but for the grace of God, there go I is the expression, right? That we all have this, we have capacity to do incredibly good in the world, which is what being relational is all about, because we also hold the capacity to do bad and evil. It's constantly a choice point to one degree or another. It's a constant choice point. And when it can be modeled for others, there can be a reciprocity in that, not because you're goody good when it comes from love and it doesn't bypass the need for accountability and the need for reparation and, and the need for, a number of other things that civil society has set up. It can only have meaning when it then comes from a place of love. If there's to be any transformation of any dollar, any reparation, anything that's been given, any, any building that's been rebuilt, any city that's been reconstituted, it's because it's been done with love. Love.
1: Wow. I think you have segued me beautiful, Luis, into my final question. And it pains me to even end this conversation because I'm loving it so much, but I've gone way over our time here. Um, So we definitely are going to have to have you back for sure. But to wrap up today, what advice do you have? And I think you've already given some amazing advice to the answer to this question, but what advice do you have, Luis, to our listeners and to me on how we can help make the world a better place.
0: Ooh, well, I would say we can all do our part to raise the vibration for healing. And we can do that by paying attention to our bodies and to the stories that we tell ourselves And where they show up in our thinking and in our bodies that hold us back and make us ill or make us highly reactive. And we are all experiencing all those things at some point or to some degree. Sure. But to pay attention to that, because in that awareness with breath work, with just taking in a breath of this oxygen that is there for us to live, we can begin to experience a greater sense of spaciousness that does allow us to re-regulate ourselves. And therefore we can resonate and there will be that vibration for healing as opposed to resisting, um, and so I, I think that we can really do our part to raise the vibration by paying close attention to ourselves and then giving that back to others. And that would be relational reciprocity.
1: Love, love, love it, Luis. This has been a beautiful conversation for our listeners. You can find more about Luis at icthat.org which is also now called uh, Blink of an Eye. Did I get that correct?
0: Beautiful.
1: You can also find Luisa's book, Being Relational, The Seven Ways to Quality Interaction and Lasting Change. And of course, the podcast that we mentioned is called Blink of an Eye as well. And in fact, I love your little blurb that you write on it, the Blink of an Eye podcast, which takes listeners through a relational approach to trauma and trauma healing through storytelling and interviews of heroes. And villains. That's beautiful. I love that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I've loved every second of this time with you, Steve. You're an amazing man and you are absolutely sprinkling pixie dust all over the uh-huh. earth with your podcast and uh, making the world truly a better place. And I'm really honored and privileged to have been asked to spend some time with you.
1: The honor and privilege is completely mine. Thank you. Thank you so much, Louise. Take care. Special thanks to our producer, Noah Existe, and editor, Joe Tempoco. Our music was written and performed by Algien Importante. Thank you so much for listening. If this podcast brightened your day in any way, please share it with a friend who you think it might resonate with. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review, as that is the single best way to help the show and get the word out to more good humans. For behind-the-scenes info, please visit our website at BetterPlaceProject.org, where you can even click on the microphone in the lower right-hand corner and leave us a message, or just stop by to say hi. And you can follow us on Instagram at BetterPlaceProj, and you'll find me at Instagram at SteveNorrisOfficial. Look for small ways to be kind this week, and that will help make the world a better place. Make the world a better place. Make the world. Make the way.